Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello, hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of ClearCast. I'm your host, Katie Keller, and today we're going to do a deep dive into military myths. And so my guest today is Steve Matthew Leonard. You may know him as Doctrine Man, and I'm so delighted to welcome him back to the Security Clearance Careers podcast. It has been a while, but no matter which branch you may have served in, no matter what your MOS or equivalent is, no matter how long you've served, American citizens might be prone to thinking every veteran has served our armed forces in the same capacity as like a character Rambo killing machine. Not every general is like Jack Ripper from Dr. Strangelove and Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump. I mean, it goes on and on. And not all military service members are broken. So we're going to dive into some of these myths that you may have heard in the past. But first, Steve, thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me on, Katie. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a while, so it's great to be back and uh, great to to hear your voice again. Yeah, likewise. So I mentioned that not all service members are broken. And while some do suffer from PTSD following military service, not all PTSD is the same. And PTSD and serving do not always go hand in hand. So tell us a little bit more about your experience with this common myth. So, I mean, this is one that I think all of us are familiar with. And it's a really popular narrative. Whenever somebody does something, especially now, if a veteran does something, it always comes into the forefront of the discussion is, you know, somebody suffering from, from PTSD. And it's been, we used to talk about this a few years ago when we were probably just past the apex of the surge in Iraq, that we were eventually going to get to a point where we saw people using PTSD as a defense, especially within court. You can't blame me. You can't hold me accountable for what I did because I have PTSD. And as even as service members then and veterans now, we would look at that and say, this is eventually going to come to the fore and people are going to accept this. And this is going to become the common narrative that, oh, well, you know, clearly if you've served, you're going to suffer and not take into account that different people are affected by trauma and stress differently. So that's not necessarily going to be the case. But if you look at the, and I hate to, I hate to say, you know, the media as a large conglomerate, but if you think about it in terms of their, the narrative, the popular narrative typically relies on that. If there's a shooting, obviously the, the person involved, if it's a veteran, there, there's PTSD involved. If there's a family squabble, then, you know, so-and-so has PTSD. It doesn't matter what the what the offense is, PTSD becomes the the go-to defense and as print and social media uh, and even broadcast media as they pick that narrative up and push it, then that's what the general public starts to see and and expect. I know I've been asked on multiple occasions, you know, very quietly, do you suffer from PTSD? It's like, well, you know, if I did, I sure probably wouldn't tell you necessarily, but I, why would you even ask that? Do you walk up to people on the street and ask them, do you have a sociopathic disorder? Do you have something wrong with you? No, you don't. So why would you think it would be okay to ask that? But the fact that they do, I think, signals back to that general public belief that we all suffer. And 
because that's what they see as they see it on the news they see it on you know ncis they see it on the movies wherever oh you know you got the poor veteran who suffers from ptsd eventually we all fall into the same category and hence the myth begins that, that we all carry that we all have ptsd that's one of the probably the first and most pervasive myths that we see anymore is that we're all broken and I think that's probably the better term. It's not just that we all have PTSD, that we're broken. And that's the stereotype that, honestly, it sells newspapers and drives viewership. Whether it's true or not doesn't make any difference. It's just a good narrative, and it sells. Well, and it's like, you know, I'm a veteran, and you sort of get the head tilt, like, oh, you know, you can't just throw this blanket stereotype on, on a group. Oh, God, don't get me started. Yeah. It's it's almost like I'm recently divorced. Oh, like, no, it's it's not all bad. It's everybody has their own story, you know. <laughs> and so you recently dove into these myths on an article that released at news.clearancejobs.com last month. And a few others that you included is that all veterans exist in this perpetual state of combat and that all veterans are quote unquote shooters. So let's talk about your MOS while you served and how these myths couldn't be further from the truth for a lot of service members. So I, I served in a couple of different capacities. Once, for the first half of my career, I was a, a multifunctional logistician. So I ran maintenance, did supply stuff, did transportation, worked across those three fields. Didn't mean I didn't get shot at. Didn't mean I wasn't involved in combat. But that experience is vastly different from someone that deals with close quarters combat and, and actually looks in the eyes of the people they have to shoot on a daily basis. It's a different experience. And then the second half of my career, I was a strategist. So again, a completely different experience. Again, it doesn't mean you're not exposed to danger. It doesn't mean you don't understand what combat is. It's just, it's not the same. But there's a broad belief that, that we have a very homogenous experience. And I think it relates back to the whole PTSD thing and the fact that you're talking about the, the limbic system, the whole fight or flight reaction, that the reason why that, you know, you see that, that we all suffer, we're all broken, is that we exist within this perpetual state of combat. And I think there's, and, and you know, you hate to point this out, but I think that there's a, there's a certain portion of our population and among veterans specifically that want people to think that that they like the idea that oh hey look at look at Ed Ed Ed's just you know he's always at war with himself and you know he's just like you just just waiting to go at it again i think some people thrive off that attention uh, most of us don't most of us would just rather just move on and it's a job we're going to go do something different but there is that myth and i think that feeds into the whole idea that we're all shooters and that was another myth and that one is a very personal one for me because i live next door to somebody who has always assumed that i know Chris Kyle, the late SEAL sniper, and he on multiple occasions has come to me and asked me, you know, hey, what was it like? Did you know him? No, I didn't know him. I'm not a Navy SEAL. You know, I've never done that. That's not my thing. Different service, all that. But then his his assumption is, well, if you wore the uniform, you're a shooter. You're one of those guys that they see on SEAL Team 6 or, you know, you see in the movies, we're all alike, right? It's a homogenous experience. We're all out there as shooters. And this is funny because the guy's a doctor. He can't envision the fact that we have doctors in uniform. We have no doctors. We're all shooters. We're all out there shooting and engaging and doing those kinds of things. And living next door to this guy for eight years, I've never been able to convince him that's not the truth. He'll, he'll walk up I'm out there mowing the lawn and he'll walk up and he'll immediately want to talk about what's it like being on Delta Force. I don't know. If you find anybody who knows, let me know. I'd love to talk to them, but no, I don't know. 
And then it'll go back to the, hey, well, did you ever meet Chris Kyle? No, I, I never met Chris Kyle. You know, hey, they made a movie about him. Yeah, I know they made a movie about him. Uh, and we go down that whole, you're a shooter, you wore the uniform, you know, it, it, the to connect. And it, it feeds that whole belief that you know, we're all a, a single, a singular population that we are who we are. Right. Well, and kind of bringing it back to maybe some of the recruiter audience that's listening, I think that's why it's really important, you know, as you're navigating sort of the landscape in the civilian world where members have transitioned, understanding the different military occupational specialties and kind of on the flip side, the <laughs> relating it to security clearances one myth is that that I hear commonly is, you know, I, I know all these secrets because I have a clearance. And it's like, no, <laughs> you don't hold the nuclear launch codes. Like you you have a clearance and you have access to sensitive information, but it, it is a little bit siloed. And so kind of relating to to sort of the security clearance careers piece after the military transition, those are those are some myths that I encounter. God, yeah, you you really touched on something interesting right there because that's something that I have been asked about just as many times as anything else is, well, you were in the military. You must be really good at keeping secrets. <laughs> Why would you say that? Well, didn't you have a security clearance? Yep. Well, then you know what it's like to keep secrets. Yeah. Like, you don't understand what this is. I mean, literally, it's it's... And then you end up in a long conversation about let me let me explain to you how security clearances work and what they mean and what the access to information means and I mean more often than not if I could avoid having access or possession of something that was at the SCI level or within a special access program I, I I'd avoid it I didn't want to know I could do my job without knowing so I didn't need to know and so it's not like we're all sitting around with desks filled with classified documents. And we have all, like you said, like we've got the nuclear launch codes just in case somebody drops the football off at the house. <laughs> no, it, it couldn't be further from the truth. You know that I know that the general public, they're not so sure. Yeah. Because what do they see on TV? Oh my God. Crazy Eddie, the veteran with PTSD. He's got the launch codes. Cause he had a, he had a tip, he had a secret clearance. And so he must have all that information. And then you sit back and, 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 oh my God, do I really have to watch this again? But hey, if, I, if it was on Army Wives, it has to be true. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I, I think everybody likes to embellish the very mundane and boring lives that a lot of us lead. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's another one, trying to make people understand that not all deployments are the same because they'll say, hey, my, you know, my, 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 my neighbor's cousin, you know, he, he deployed. Oh, well, that's just interesting. Yeah, he spent a year at this horrible place in Kuwait. And you're like, oh, well, okay, that's a little different. It's a, but, but here's the funny thing, though. I mean, it doesn't take away from the fact that somebody served, but the character of that service can be a little bit different, especially when it comes to risk. But amongst veterans, in a lot of cases, you find people who are really sensitive about somebody saying, well, there's a difference between being deployed to Kandahar and being deployed to Qatar. Oh, no, it's the same. The deployment is a deployment. No, 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 not at all. Well, don't you demean my deployment. Well, I'm not demeaning your deployment. Saying it's different. It's not the same. And there is that myth that all, you know, you see, well, you know, here comes, here comes somebody. They're going to do a reunion video. Oh, my God, they've been deployed for three years. Like nobody deploys for three years. But the public thinks we do. We just go away and never come back. We're never around our families. We're just gone all the time. Not that, oh, hey, we went for six months or you went for three months. Maybe you went for a year, came back. You know, you've seen those videos too. I mean, we all have the tearful reunion videos. Say, you know, 
Cousin Eddie went to basic training, and God, he's finally back, and the whole town is glad to see him. And they'll show it on the Today Show, and everybody will be, oh, isn't that wonderful? And everybody goes through that, but we don't make videos of it. But it perpetuates that myth that we're always gone. Mm-hmm. So th- this next one, I- I'm really interested to to hear your thoughts on the old thank you for your service. And for for some in my experience, I have spoken with civilians that think you're an ass if you don't say this to service members. And they're really like salivating at the opportunity to thank someone for their service. So give me the cold hard truth on what you think about this one. So and this is a this is a personal thing. And, and I can't speak for everybody. I don't like to be thanked for my service because I look at the service was my choice. And most of the time when people say thank you for your service, it's a reflexive comment. There's no real thought behind it. They're they're thanking you because they think, like you said, they think they need to do it. You don't need to do it. On the other side of that coin, there are people who want to be thanked for their service. The idea that if you meet somebody who wants to be thanked for their service, you should probably walk the other way. And quickly, because most of us don't want the attention. We don't need the. We don't need to be thanked. We're doing what we chose to do, and we did it for our own reasons. We're past the point of the of hey, don't thank me for my service. I'm okay with that. I used to kind of chuckle because my mom, over the course of my military career, my mom was never an advocate of military service, and had perpetually tried to find me other jobs. And I think I opened up that article with a discussion of that. But what was funny was my mom, after the Iraq war started, found a patriotism in herself that had never existed before. And it literally just came down to the having a yellow ribbon that basically said, my son serves. And she loved the attention of having somebody say, oh, thank you for what your son does. And it drove me crazy. And she'd drive around with this yellow ribbon that was faded and upside down. Didn't matter because somebody would always tell her, thank you. Thank you for your son's service. (laughs) And I was like, really, mom, take that thing and throw it away, please, because it's not your service, it's my service. I don't need to be thanked. And and one of us is serving and the other one isn't. And for all those times <laughs> you tried to get me a job at the paper mill rather than be in the military, I think we're beyond people thanking you for my service. But yeah, but there still is that whole thread of people. And we joke about that. A lot of us will quietly laugh about the whole thank me for my service crowd. That's kind of embarrassing. And I don't I don't understand those people. I've never felt that desire. Yeah, it really reminds me uh, recently, for those of you that don't know, I am the clearance jobs meme generator. And I put together one, it was talking about uh, military transport aircrafts and people complaining about airline seats and uh, civilians complaining about, oh, well, tell me about your terrible flight attendant service. And there were so many people on that thread who were like, hey, you chose (laughs) to join the military. That was your job. People are actually paying for flight service and if it's terrible. But then you had the other group of people that were like, oh, yeah, no, this is terrible in the military. And people, civilians are complaining about flights that they pay for. And so you do have those two very opposite different types of thinking. We do. I suppose it's not surprising. There are people who the same people who want to be thanked for their service are probably the ones who perpetuate the myth that they're shooters and that they have issues and they they want that attention brought to them. Hey, God help. You know, that's what they want. That's great. That's that's not what most of us are about. I think most of us are happy to be humble and put our service in a proper context and, and just live our lives. 
Yeah, and that kind of leads into the the southern myth that you talked about, the dark side of war and how you might really be spending your deployment. And, you know, some folks that I've talked to both on active duty and deploying as a contractor couldn't wait to deploy. And you shared a little tongue-in-cheek comment about someone saying, you know, that I've seen things that could really translate to the time spent at base dining halls, wondering about mystery meat. And that's kind of, you know, that's maybe the way that some service members have spent deployments. So let's talk about that one with your experience. I think that that kind of feeds off the other idea that the, the same thing with people who there are people who and I, and I don't fault them, but there are people who like to say, oh, you know, I've seen things. I, I, it's, it's rough. And and they want people to think that they have. And I think the, the truth of the matter is a lot of us have seen that. A lot of us have seen the dark side of things. A lot of us have been exposed to some really gruesome realities of war. But I'd say 99% of the people won't talk about it. They've moved on. They they put it away in a special place or a dark place, and, and they just move on with their lives. Again, I would go back to if somebody wants to tell you about the horrible things they've seen, I think they probably fall into that same category of thank me for my service and hey, look at me, you know, I've got the I've got the thousand meter stare. Okay, sure you do. You know, I'm I'm sure that was a, a rough deployment for you. And different people are affected differently by things, but I would go back to the fact that I think that a lot of in a lot of those cases, those are people who want more attention. And for whatever reason, they they want civilians to thank them for their service, to recognize them for what they've done. They feel Feel that obligation to be recognized, and like I would go back and say, ninety-nine percent of us are not like that. That we're just ordinary, everyday people, just going about our lives, doing our things, living, living out our lives, and we don't want to be thanked. We don't want people to think we're shooters. We don't want to think that we're all crazy, or that we have, you know, some something going on with us. We just want to live our lives. A big part of life is family, and so you dive into kind of marriage problems and family balance and, you know, separation of military members and spouses or their families obviously can put a little strain on relationships, but not all veterans are prone to this and not all military families experience this. So why do you think that is such a common misconception to the outside world? I I just, I think it's another one of those things that has just built up over time that they read stories and there's a lot of stories out there that talk about the stress that are put on military families, the high divorce rates, which are not necessarily true. And it paints a picture of, of a military that's family unfriendly. And I don't think that's necessarily the truth. There are times where families just don't seem to bubble up the, the surface for priority. By and large, we don't have any family problems that anybody else doesn't have inside or outside the military. And I think there's probably something to be said for, although I don't have data in front of me to confirm this, that the lifestyle, yes, it puts more stress on the families, but I think in the, in the same vein, it also pushes families closer together. And my personal experience, and you know, I've been married to my wife for 36 years, is that you know, when you move all over the world and you change jobs every couple of years, the one constant you have is your family. And so a lot of us tend to be really, you know, really hold on tight to those families because that's the that's our anchor. And so, you know, despite what people say and what the news might might report, I think by and large, you see a lot of really long, well held together families in the military. 
And the ones that fall apart, I mean, they're no different than the ones that fall apart in the civilian world. They fall apart for the same reasons. People don't communicate. Relationships just don't don't mesh after a certain point in time. But I think the opposite probably holds true more often than not, is you see a lot of really strong, well-bonded families in the military. Those families are our anchors, and, and that kind of holds us together. And I think that if you really took the time to look hard at the family structures within the military, the people that end up being the most well-adjusted, who kind of defy all the myths, probably have strong families too. They've been together a long time. The, the, the kids are, are resilient. The marriages are strong and they hold together for a reason. I mean, it's, it's that strong bond that holds everybody together kind of probably pushes everything else to the outside too. Touching on, you know, those military spouses, kind of, you know, the, the other individuals, a part of the military family unit who are just kind of serving in a different way. One stereotype that you've come across that seems ad nauseum is that spouses are uneducated or unemployed or unemployable and are, you know, their, their entire identity is that military spouse. So I know that you've talked a little bit about how serving as a military spouse actually makes you more educated and more resilient and some of those other things that you talked about. So there's, there's a couple of things worth adding here. One, I think that that, that myth of the uneducated, unemployed spouse is probably something we perpetuated ourselves. I go back to the whole personification of the dependa. And, you know, you go back about probably about 15 years and we were probably what a uh, few years into the Iraq war. And that was the term, term du jour is dependas, you know, the uneducated, unemployed, overweight spouse who, you know, just wants commissary privileges and life insurance and, you know, TRICARE, whatever military benefits, it became something funny. There were books produced about it. And that perpetuated a myth that was just that. It was a myth. And along the way, people forgot about the fact that we have, by and large, a very well-educated spousal population and who become stronger and more resilient as a result of what they do while they're, while they're being spouses. It's, it's very common to see you know, spouses come in who are educators, who are doctors, who are lawyers, who carry professional certifications, and, and not just in joint military couples, joint domicile couples. There's a breadth of that experience and capability out there. I think we're seeing that start to shift as we see more and more effort towards making careers portable and increase the portability of spousal careers, that's going to turn that myth upside down. But I, I would go back to the fact that that myth is something I think we created ourselves and we celebrated it because we thought it was funny and, and didn't think about how offensive it really was to spouses that didn't fit that stereotype. And you, know, you think about there was a point in time where you could go on just about any social media thread and there was some service member saying something nasty about a spouse. And typically calling them dependents. You know, they, you, I don't like what you say. Therefore, you're a dependa. You're useless. You're uneducated. You're unemployed. You know, pick your shaming method. And, and But we own that one. That's one we own. It's a, it's a shame because, like you said, there are brilliant military spouses who are juggling a, lo a lot of things. And, you know, a ton of them that are actually supporting the cleared community as well, just because of proximity wise, living on base and working military spouses, also taking care of, you know, their family and, and lots of stuff. So 
Another myth that you've mentioned is that veterans join the military because they're they're out of options. You know, all right, I can't go to school. I can't do this. I'm just going to join the military. So tell us a little bit about the motivation for you to join, especially knowing that it, it wasn't necessarily in your in your mother's wishes for you to join. I mean, honestly, I uh, I never I never envisioned myself having a military career. And I told I would tell people right up until the time I retired, I'm in for four and then I'm going to get out. It became a joke because they came in and like, oh, I'm going to do my four years and I'll see what's out there. But then I, I found out that I really enjoyed it and I liked it. I, in my own family, I know that my own mother felt like for years that there was something and, and it's a generational too, but there, but I think in her mind, she believed that the only reason I stayed in the military was because I didn't have options on the outside. And so every time I would go home, we would go through this play acting where she'd get out the want ads and she'd look for jobs and forget the fact that I had a college engineering degree. I'll find you a job at the paper mill, or maybe they're hiring, you know, the, the city dump is hiring and she would find these jobs that were, you know, by no means at all equivalent to what I was already doing or matched up with my education. And then she would say, but, these are stable jobs and you need a stable job because in her mind that, you know, I was in a career because I didn't have any other options and I was unemployable. And I mean, she had all the mythology built into her, but I think that there is, there are still a lot of people who look at what we do and for whatever reason, they don't understand the call to service. There are some people who join the military because hey, it's familial and they have generations of military service. And despite what my mom thought, we have service that traces back to the American Revolution in our family. Every generation has served. And the same thing in successive generations. My, you know, my son served. My son-in-law is currently serving. You know, it, it, it's a family thing. And we none of us do that because we're out of options. We do it because it's a call to service. And we feel like, it is, it's the right thing to do, whether we feel like we want to owe something to our country or we do it out of the just because we feel that call. It's our it's not ever a matter of being out of options. And most of the military does that because, you know, we do that because we have our own unique calls and we stay for our own reasons, whether we stay or whether we go. But there are an awful lot of people, I think, out there still today who think that the only reason you would join the military is, well, you, know, you couldn't get a job on Wall Street, you didn't get accepted into law school, whatever, you know, you don't have anything going for you, so you join the military, which couldn't be further from the truth. One of the things I would share with just about anybody who would listen was, in my family, I'm only a second-generation college graduate. My father was first-generation, and he used the GI Bill after the Korean War to gain social mobility, build generational wealth, do the kinds of things that he believed he could do. He just needed that boost to be able to do it. Enlists in the Navy during the Korean War, serves, comes out, uses the GI Bill, goes back to school, gets his bachelor's degree, and served as a, in the, the Army Corps of Engineers for 35 years. I don't think people understand that the military is still a powerful vehicle for social mobility. And, and it gives people that maybe don't have opportunities, it gives them that opportunity they're seeking. People who are in the military, they get it. You absolutely get it. And the benefits are worth it because you come in, whether it's college benefit, whether you stay a little bit longer, we understand that. But I don't think, and this is where I really, really respect recruiters for what they, what they have to do. As a recruiter, how do you explain to a kid that doesn't need social mobility that they're still it's still worthwhile to serve? 
it's a, it's a good thing. You know, it reinforces values, helps cement your work ethic, builds character. And there's so much goodness in that service. Being part of something bigger than yourself, it's tough. It is absolutely tough. And you got to respect them for the fact that they have to go out and they have to counter all the myths and they have to counter the narrative at the same time trying to meet quotas and doing so with the best people they can find. That is probably one of the most thankless jobs in the entire in the entire world. So you got you got to love them for that. Well, and you know, it kind of goes back to your neighbor not being able to fathom that there are medical doctors in in the military. There are so many different options for you know incoming service members, and it's not because they are out of options or are not brilliant. With all my podcast guests, at least those that have served, I love asking, you know, where was where was your favorite place you were stationed and why? And so kind of talking about stations and moves, not all veterans have served in these beautiful exotic locations around the globe. So I, I'd love to hear from you. Let's talk about some of your least favorite stations or some you might be aware of uh, to kind of bust the myth that military members are very well traveled and spend time in these beautiful sites. It's funny that you say this because there are places that you go to that you wouldn't necessarily look at as an oasis, uh, as an exotic location. In the Army, I don't think there are any exotic locations. I think you know, we picked places where there was great swamps, deserts, uh, whatever, cheap land that was affordable that the, you know we could take and we could turn into uh, what we needed to for our requirements. I would honestly say I don't think I've ever served somewhere where I didn't enjoy it. Now, I might not have thought that going into it. And I'm somebody who, when I came in the Army, my one two of my goals were I wanted to either serve in Alaska or Hawaii in an overseas assignment, or what's now a joint base Lewis-McChord, which was close to home for us, if I was CONUS as opposed to OCONUS. I never got any of those assignments. No matter what I did, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. But I don't think I ever served anywhere that we couldn't find some, some redeeming value. And we bounced around a little bit. I mean, you're talking, you know, we spent five and a half years in Europe and we didn't get the Germany experience. We we were in Belgium for four years and the Netherlands for a year. Great places to be. Just amazing countries. Different experience. Two tours at Fort Campbell, two or three tours at Fort Leavenworth, back and forth to Aberdeen Proving Ground a couple of times, did the Middle East a few times, Korea. Got around, but never... I would honestly say there was no place I absolutely hated. There were there was always goodness, and and I think what makes it goodness is well, the, what may helps you find the goodness is that you know home is where you find the family, and in every everywhere I went, other than the Middle East, is you know, the family was there, and we've always found things to do. We always had adventures. And you can point to every one of those places and the kids to this day and all my kids, well, two of my three kids are in their 30s. They'll tell you about going to those places and, well, hey, that's where I learned how to play guitar or, you know, that's the first place I rode a horse or, you know, well, here we used to go do uh, baseball card shows or we went to castles or did this. They all have really good memories. None of them have bad memories. That makes all those installations nice. Even though every one of them probably had drawbacks, in retrospect, you look back and everybody was healthy, everybody was happy, and and we all had a home. 
And so we were always together as a group and, and it worked. And I look back and yeah, okay, I never got to Hawaii, never got to Alaska. I don't ever think I went anywhere that I wouldn't have enjoyed just because I had the people with me that mattered the most. And I think that that's your myth buster right there is, yeah, people on the outside just assume that, you know, hey, you you go to these great places all over the world. No, we don't. But they're okay. You know, we used to joke about the fact that, you know, you go to Fort Drum and you're using your snowblower in June. But you talk to people who go to Fort Drum and most people really like it up there. It's a beautiful place. Fort Irwin, same thing. I would joke about going to Fort Irwin during scorpion mating season. But Fort Irwin, it's okay. You know, there's you're halfway between L.A. and Las Vegas and there's lots to do and places to go. And yeah, you know, you're in the middle of the desert, but nah, it could be worse. There's every every post is like that. Every installation is like that. There's goodness and there's badness. Okay, hey, you got a great seaside location, but it comes with black mold. But you still have a great seaside location. Just work really hard at the mold abatement and maybe it won't be as bad. But then you know, we'll run into people who absolutely hated one place or another and I don't know. I never got there. That's uh, maybe I'm unique. Maybe I look at the glass half full kind of thing, but I would actually say I liked everywhere we went. It's about perspective. It's about staying positive. It's about being humble and grateful for what you have and not letting the not so good stuff not get to you as much because is it really worth it? That's true. Almost of any job, you look at the positives, you you emphasize the goodness in what you do, and, and, you, and you look at the world differently. It's just that whole... I think Colin Powell has a, has a quote about that perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. You know, yeah, it absolutely is. And, and finding the goodness wherever you're at does an awful lot to make those days go better. Because if you go somewhere and you're miserable and you hate where you're at, you're going to have some long days ahead of you. Very true. Well, Steve, I really want to thank you for joining me on the podcast today. So along with all of these myths that we discussed, are are there any that stand out to you personally that you thought maybe before you joined the army? So this is funny that you mentioned this because I was doing my day job last week and sitting with a group of undergraduates and one of them had said, hey, I went on Fort Leavenworth the other day. And so we started to have a conversation and I almost never tell my students war stories. Um, uh, I have a separate persona that, you know, hey, you ask me, I'll tell you, but I'm not going to tell you otherwise. But I decided to have some fun with them. And it's one of those things that whether you believe it's a myth or whether it's not a myth, we started to talk about Fort Leavenworth. And I took the opportunity to tell ghost stories. Yeah, Fort Leavenworth is renowned for its ghosts. And so we're sitting in class, you know, in the middle of a Tuesday or a Thursday morning, and I'm regaling the students with ghost stories of living on army installations and, and told one of my own from Fort Campbell. And, you know, you have kids sitting there with the, with the hair standing up on their arms. <laughs> <laughs> do you believe in ghosts? I'm like, well, actually, yeah, I do, because I've seen one and it scared the shit out of me and I've never forgotten it. And you only have to see one and you know it's real. Is it a myth? Is it not a myth? I don't know. A lot of our installations are really old and they have a lot of creepy things going on. And I use that as an opportunity to tell, also to tell the story of a couple of the haunted houses on Fort Leavenworth, including one that has an old lady in a rocking chair in it. And then if you get too close, the lady comes out of the rocking chair and screams. And then the students are like, oh, that can't be true. And I said, not only is it true, the only people who will live in that house to this day are the uh, international Korean students because they look at ghosts differently. 
And so that house is always is always home to a Korean family because they're the only ones who will live with the old lady in the rocking chair. And then by then you got them all, you know, their their hair standing up and they're all creeped out. I can't tell you how much fun that is. <laughs> I feel like that's another podcast episode because I'm not sure about my stance on ghosts quite <laughs> yet, which knock on wood, I, I haven't had an experience, but I guess we'll see. I got a few more years to figure it out. Yeah, it only takes one. Hi, yeah, yeah. Well, with, you know, the help of Hollywood and TV screens, much of the military is covered in myths and we busted some of those today. Most are not based on fact and they're all stereotypes and a lot of assumptions make these myths sort of run amok. So if, if you have a military myth that isn't on this list that we discussed today, shoot us a note and tell us your story. But in the meantime, for more resources on military life, the transition that follows, or to read more of Doctrine Man's stories, you can visit news.parentsjobs.com. 